Well, I wanted to uh, start us off this morning with one of my favorite icebreaker kind of questions. A lot of college students have heard me ask this question before, and it's, uh, it's intentional, very serious question. Actually, it's not, it's not at all serious, but it is intentional. kind of takes us into to how I want us to, to start thinking this morning about our text. I want to ask you to consider and maybe talk to your neighbor if there's somebody that you came to church with, a family or a friend. I want you to consider if you had a superpower, what would your superpower be? Now, just to give you an example, I know for a fact that Superman is the best of all of the superheroes. There's really no uh, comparison to Superman. If you think that I'm wrong, like we can debate later, you can come find me up front and I'll explain to you why Superman is the best of all of the superheroes. So here's the deal. I'm going to pick one of Superman's superpowers. If I was going to pick a superpower, I would pick flight that I could just, I need to go see someone across the country, boom, I don't need to catch a, a plane, I don't need to get in the car, I just fly there. Now someone after first service uh, was talking to me and said, well, I'm scared of heights. And I was like, wait, so am I. So I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm not really comfortable with anything above six feet and four inches. And so I don't know how I reconcile my uh, scared of being scared of heights and flight as a superpower. But that's what I would pick, would be, would be flight. Now, I want you to, to just give it some thought, you know, consider it deeply. It seems silly, it is, but it'll lead into something that I want us to get to. So take like two minutes and give some thought, talk to somebody sitting next to you if, that's, uh, if that works for you, and share what you would pick as your one superpower. So take like two minutes and do that. Hopefully you've got a superpower in mind. One of the things that I think is compelling about superheroes, maybe the, maybe the more compelling thing than a superpower is actually the origin story. You know, where did this person come from and, and their weakness? You know, if it's like Superman and Kryptonite, I think those are some of the most compelling reasons why those, uh, those stories are a part of our culture. Uh, I was thinking about the superhero idea and what I wanted to illustrate to get us started with. And then my daughter, Annalie, came home with this. I think there's a picture of this. She had made a Captain America shield out of recycled bottle caps. So that was sitting at home. Um, the origin story, I don't know. I've told college students the last uh, superhero movie I watched was the very first Iron Man movie, which was like before they were born or something a long time ago. Um, but uh, Captain America's, uh, like his origin story, he goes from being a weakling to uh, he takes super soldier serum, which sounds like something ridiculous and made up that would be in a comic book, and then he becomes 
the pinnacle of, of strength and ability, like the, the ultimate soldier. And so he's got this backstory, and he has a, a super power. And so I love the backstory, and I love these ideas of a super power. Set that aside for just a moment in your, in your brain, in your mind. Set it on the shelf. We'll get it back out in a second. I want to share with you some good news and some bad news for us who uh, follow Jesus. Here's the bad news. Those in our community, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's somebody on your dorm floor, maybe uh, somebody across town or across the world, the people in our community who are most in need of the good news of Jesus, when they are, are polled, when they're asked, when they're surveyed, what do you think about Christians? They are the ones who view Christians most negatively. The people who are most in need of the gospel see Christians oftentimes as cold, judgmental, angry people. Consistently when they're surveyed, that's the answer. Here's the good news. I know that we're not that way, or that we don't have to be that way. If we are not naturally warm, caring, loving, forgiving people, we have a super power on our side, a super natural power. The, the Holy Spirit the, the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Trinity, for every follower of Jesus, the, the gospel, the power of the Spirit is at work to transform us into people who are not like we used to be, to transform us into people who love our neighbors, who are willing to, to take God's word to heart and, and let God work in our lives. That's our superpower. It's the power of the gospel to change us and to change the world that we live in. That's the good news. And so this morning, I want us to look at one of my favorite kind of overlooked passages of Scripture, and it's the book of Philemon. If you're reading in the New Testament reading plan, we've, we've gone through Philemon. It's short. It's only one chapter long, and it's this very personal letter from Paul to a church leader named Philemon, and it's in regards to their, uh, this uh, slave named Onesimus. And so you've, you've got this one chapter book, and, and I would summarize it for us this morning in this way. The whole book could be summarized this way. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to transform our lives and transform the community that we live in with love and virtue. Or maybe to put it another way, how we treat people should be radically transformed by the gospel. So I want to show you how this plays out in the text this morning. I'm going to read most of this little short book, Philemon, and then I need to do three things. First thing I need to do is explain a little bit about first century slavery and the context of how this book comes about. Then I want to show you how Paul's appeal, his appeal to Philemon and Onesimus, he doesn't just tell them, hey guys, be good. He doesn't say that. He says, be transformed, be changed by the gospel in order to make this relationship right. And then the last thing I want to do this morning is share with us, as a community of believers, I think we need to consider how we can be so spiritually transformed that we impact the community that we live in. So let's read in Philemon. I'm going to read verses 8 through 21. And here's what the text says. Starting in verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. 
It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back, who is my very heart, back to you, and I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong and owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Let me explain a little bit of the context, the the backstory, if you will, of uh, Philemon and Onesimus. So Philemon was a leader in the city of Colossae. He's a leader in this group of house churches, and he's associated with Paul's letter to the Colossae, the Colossians. Uh, You find that in our, our New Testament. And Philemon was a man who had a servant named Onesimus. Now, what likely happened is Onesimus, this slave or servant to Philemon, uh, likely stole something and ran away. He he ran away to to disappear in the big city of Rome. In Rome is where Paul is in prison. He is in jail, writing letters and sending them out to to Timothy and sending them out to the Colossian church and uh, trying to to convince as many Roman soldiers who are standing next to him that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's in Rome doing this work, and somehow Paul and Onesimus, their paths cross. And Paul leads Onesimus to faith in Jesus. And Onesimus accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord, as his Savior. And Paul says to Onesimus, now what you have to do is you have to go and make things right with your past master, Philemon. And he writes a letter, Paul does, he writes a letter and he he hands it to Onesimus and says, all right, now you're the courier, deliver this letter. And he goes back to Colossae, he goes to Philemon and he says, here I am, read this. So he shows up and that's what we have as the letter Philemon, is that Paul sends Onesimus back in order to, with these instructions from Paul, on how to make the relationship right. Now, as you read this and you read about the language of slavery, it's really easy for us as modern people to think about slavery in Civil War era America. And it's a little bit different than that. I need to explain a little bit of first century Roman slavery. When this letter was written, uh, probably in the 60s AD, um, Paul is in Rome and the population of Rome would have been around a million people. So Paul's in in Rome, about a million people, and the the spread of slavery, of servitude in the Roman Empire was was widespread, 
And they have some estimates that the city of Rome, if there's a population of a million people, the number of slaves in that population is approaching about half of the entire population. So if there's a million people in Rome, maybe 400,000 of them are slaves. Those are slaves, that, and across the Roman Empire, this was true, that, that slaves are, are kind of concentrated in the big cities, and they would have served in a variety of places. They would have served as like a, a household servant, someone who helped to, to take care of household chores. There would have been slaves who worked in the fields. There would have been slaves who worked in the mines. And the way slavery worked in the, the first century is a little bit different than, than we might think about it. Slaves in the Roman Empire were primarily gathered from the, the population of these conquered states. Someone in the first century, or someone in the first century, someone in the first service, after I was preaching this in the first service, they came up and said, kind of like POWs. And I was like, well, kind of like that at first, that if you lost the battle to the, a Roman army, they would gather up all of those conquered soldiers, anyone who's standing around who didn't have any power to defend themselves, and you are now a slave in the Roman Empire. And so the, the population of conquered people could have been uh, Greeks, uh, Germanic states, Western Europe, North Africa, all these regions were slowly but surely conquered by Rome and their inhabitants become slaves in the Roman Empire. So you've got multi-ethnic, um, all kinds of different languages. They look different, um, but they're all slaves in the Roman Empire. And Onesimus is one of them. And he heads off to Rome. And this is kind of an interesting side note. Either there's a, a great coincidence or it's the sovereignty of God that Onesimus finds Paul. Imagine if I told you to like go to Kansas City. And the, I, I think of the entire population of Kansas City on the Kansas side would be about a million people. So if I say, go to KCK and find one person that you've never met before in the mix of, of everyone in Kansas City, that's who you're looking for. Onesimus is not looking for Paul, unless he is. If Onesimus had somehow knew who Paul was in his interaction in Philemon's home, maybe he sought Paul out, or maybe, as Paul kind of alludes, perhaps this was the sovereignty of God, that, that God would find you and save your soul, and then I would send you back to save this relationship. And so I think that might be what's happening there is this, this sovereignty of God that Onesimus bumps into Paul in the big city of Rome. But back to, to slavery. So slaves in the Roman Empire, um, there were slaves who had freedom. They would work in a household or they'd work in the field and they would work for a set amount of time. They would receive a wage. There are even records of some slaves in the Roman Empire who possessed slaves of their own. And so it's a little bit different from what we might imagine. The average um, time of servitude within slavery in the Roman Empire was about 10 years. And so they could have received wages, they could have, they had a certain freedom to come and go, but they certainly couldn't change jobs, they couldn't run away to Rome. And, and there certainly was some slavery, um, slavery in mining, uh, for example, that was, you know, cruel, harsh conditions and really, really difficult. So that's part of what's going on in first century slavery. Now, I have run into this with college students who maybe have been asking questions or they, they've talked with somebody on their dorm floor who's pretty skeptical of Christianity and says, you know, Christianity uh, approves of slavery. Or they've asked the question, why doesn't Paul just outright condemn slavery? And I think I need to, to answer that and provide a little bit of, of nuance in terms of what's happening 
in the first century or throughout uh, God's word when it deals with slavery. So both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God's people live in cultures and among pagan people who embraced slavery. They're surrounded by neighbors, they're surrounded, sometimes ruled by countries or people who embrace slavery. But God's word, God, and the authors of scripture have never created slavery. But living in cultures where slavery was present, the Bible has regulated slavery and regulated in the direction of justice and mercy. In the first century, in the world where the New Testament was written and its authors lived, women, children, and slaves had no rights at all. They were essentially possessions in the culture and in the, the kind of the context of where these people lived. So the authors of the New Testament do something in that cultural situation. They extend to women, children, and slaves a... Uh, um, a guidance in terms of their moral authority to decide for themselves how to live in that difficult circumstance. The, the New Testament says if you find yourself in this position, you are a full-fledged person and you have authority to figure out how to make choices that are appropriate where you're at. And so throughout these texts, the leaders of the first century churches tell women, children, and slaves, you have a capacity to decide for yourself because you are a full-fledged person. You can decide how to feel. You have equal value among all people as you stand before God. And that was a radically countercultural message that the New Testament writers gave to Christians in the first century. I believe that the instruction of the New Testament provided this growing Christian community a radically new ethic, an ethic of impartial love, of mutual service, of equal accountability that eventually plays into the end of slavery across the Roman Empire. As the number of Christians in the empire gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the role of slavery gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it comes to an eventual end. So that's a key thing that I think is happening behind the scenes, the, the backstory, the origin story of Philemon and Onesimus and Paul. I want you to shift gears and think about what the text has to say about how these three men have been transformed by the gospel. First thing I want you to catch is in verse 9, and it's Paul's appeal on the basis of love. Here's what Paul says in verse 9. He, could be, he says, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So Paul was a, a spiritual authority. He's like a shepherd, and the folks that he's writing to are the sheep. He could have said, this is my, my order to you. He could have boldly commanded Philemon, here's what you have to do concerning Onesimus. One, two, three. He could have laid it out in that way, but that's not what he does. Instead of issuing an order... Paul makes an appeal. Paul is confident that the gospel has so transformed Philemon that he will be willing to take this big significant loss and receive Onesimus and not receive him as a slave, but receive him as a brother. Paul would like Onesimus to return and help in the work that he's doing. 
If you read through um, all of these texts at the end of Paul's life, like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you find that his work from prison becomes more and more difficult. People begin to abandon Paul right and left, and he knows that Onesimus has been a service to him. So Paul would love for Onesimus to return and help in the work that he's doing. But that could only happen with the consent of Philemon. He doesn't order Philemon to send Onesimus back. He says, I appeal to you on the basis of love that you would decide this. Paul's confident in the power of God to change human nature, that it would be at work in Philemon so that he would make exactly the choice that seems best to Paul. Second thing that I want you to see in terms of the transformation of the gospel is what Paul says in verses 15 and 16, that you have a brother and not a slave. Here's what Paul says in 15 and verse 16. Perhaps the reason that he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but he would be even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. The New Testament uses the the imagery, the language of family when it talks about who we are in relationship to God, in relationship to each other. The imagery of brother and sister. And it helps to transform our view of how to interact in the church. Paul will, will lay this out in several different places. Here's how you view older women. Here's how you view younger women. Here's how you view an older man and a younger man. These are brothers and sisters, and that together we make up the children of God. So Paul gives us that imagery in the text that he lays out. He also lays out in places like Galatians chapter 3, that you no longer can view each other as separate. You you no longer can view each other as, as Jewish and Gentile, as slave and free, but you see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's no longer a distinction, and Paul prohibits the use of power to control each other. I was thinking about this in the the first service and explained that in my household and in my growing up years and in my children, they sometimes use power as brothers and sisters, like I'm bigger than you, I'm stronger than you, so I get to control the remote control when we're watching TV, or I'm bigger than you, so I get the last piece of dessert, or whatever it is. And you can you know, kind of relate to that, I imagine. Beyond that, as you grow into adult brothers and sisters, you understand that there isn't a dynamic of I'm bigger than you and I'm stronger than you or I'm older than you, but there's a love for one another, there's a care for one another in family that Paul lays out for us. And what that means is that there's no longer a, a, a power or control dynamic in the church. He doesn't make any room for that. He says that passes away and instead see each other as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul says to Philemon, You have lost a slave, but you have gained an eternal brother in Christ. Third thing that I want you to see about this transformation of the gospel in these individuals is how the gospel has shaped Paul into a self-sacrificing father in the faith. If you look at verse 19, Paul says this, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back not to mention that you owe me your very self. Let me explain a little bit about what Paul is saying here. Paul frequently would have used 
assistants, like a, a secretary, someone like Timothy or a professional scribe, to write down his letters that we have in the New Testament. Part of the reason for that was the, the materials, you know, I can print this on my computer on a piece of paper uh, practically for free. It cost me, I don't know, a few cents to print out text on paper, but Paul didn't have that in the first century. They would have used expensive materials like vellum or papyrus, and he's trying to pack as much content into each um, piece of, of papyrus or vellum to be sent across the, the Roman Empire. And so instead of writing that with his own hand, he would have hired a professional scribe to help him do that. And there's some question about as he grows older, if there's a, a problem with Paul's eyesight. And so maybe his handwriting is maybe like your local doctor. It's like a scrawl that's hard to read and, and it gets messy. So he says he hires a professional or he has a secretary and he dictates these letters and they write it down. But at a couple of key points in the different letters from Paul, we get this. I'm writing this part with my own hand. Do you recognize my handwriting, my name? Essentially, my name is on the dotted line. And in this, he says, I'm writing this with my own hand. Whatever Onesimus owes you, Philemon, I'm going to pay for it. My name is signed on the dotted line. I will make a, a, a sacrifice to make things right between the two of you. Paul has been shaped by the gospel. There are places where Paul is willing to pay for the spread of the gospel with his own life, that he risks life and limb, that he's arrested and beaten and shipwrecked in order to spread the gospel. But here he says, in order to make this relationship right over the heart of the gospel, I'm willing to pay out of my own pocket to make this happen. I think that's a sign that Paul has been shaped by the gospel, turned into a self-sacrificing father in the faith. The last thing we've got to think about is how all of this applies to us. And the question that I would ask to kind of move us into this is, have we been likewise transformed by the gospel? I want to ask you a series of application questions, and I want to do this in a spirit of prayer Oftentimes I'll use the, the illustration, as I give these questions to you, I want you to think of your heart as like the dashboard of your car. When um, on my dashboard of my truck, when my gas is running out, a red light pops on and I know, uh-oh, it's time to get more gas. As I read these questions, I want you to think of your heart as like the dashboard of a car and maybe as I read one of these questions, a light comes on and you realize that one applies to me and I need to give it some thought and some prayer. So with that attitude of prayer, I want you to, to listen to these questions and take a little moment to reflect on how you would answer them. First question I want you to think about in terms of application for, for our lives is this. Are there social and cultural structures around us that we all take for granted that should be transformed by our love and self-sacrifice? This would be those parts of life that we would say, it shouldn't be this way, but that's just how it is. How can our love transform these parts of life? Second question for you to consider. Are there relationships 
inside of the Christian community that have been broken by financial loss that you should do something to make right. There aren't as many people in second service this morning. Maybe our numbers are down. I'm going to guess that looking at this room, someone has been on the, the hurt end of some financial loss. Jesus says, instead of fighting one another about issues like this, that we should rush to make things right with our neighbors. So is there anything that pops on your heart radar when I ask, are there relationships inside of this community that have been broken by financial loss that need to be made right? Third question for us to consider. Are there individuals in the community of believers that you see as having some limited worth or value where you need to transform your outlook on them to that of a brother or a sister? Scripture doesn't allow us to have like a a caste system like they have in Hinduism where some people in the community are, are untouchables. There isn't room for us to have a a sense of like royalty in in our spirituality, people who are extra spiritual or holy, but instead we're to see each other as equal at the foot of the cross. So is there any way that you would be treating someone as less than a brother or sister? Fourth question, have you run away from a painful situation where you need to go back and make things right, even at some cost to yourself. Maybe you haven't literally run away to the big city like Rome. If you're here on Sunday morning in Emporia, Kansas, that's not, uh, uh, you're not running away to a big city to disappear like Onesimus. But perhaps there's a situation in life where you haven't run away in place, but in in your heart, you've run away, and you need to go back and make things right. Last thought or question in closing this morning that I have for you is this. I don't know if any of you have read this in our our New Testament reading. Maybe you, you read through the story of Philemon and Onesimus. You get to the end and, and Paul says, here's this appeal that I'm making. I have confidence that the gospel has transformed you so that you would make this right. And then the letter goes off and you ask yourself, well, what happened? How did Onesimus and Philemon, how did they get things right? How did Philemon respond as he reads through this letter? And here's an interesting note. The letter might have been read in the context of the whole church that's gathered. How do they respond to each other? Does it, does it work out okay in the end? And we don't really know. It's not uh, answered in Scripture. It's not answered in God's Word. But here's what the, the history, church history says. Church history says that the tradition is that Onesimus, the one-time slave, now set free in relationship with Paul and the gospel and Philemon, Onesimus becomes a bishop, a high leader within the church. And one of the reasons that that church history says that is that perhaps Onesimus, in becoming a church leader, had said, this is the letter that proves that I'm no longer a slave, and now I'm set free. 
this letter proves that I have a right to be in the community and a leader within the church, and that maybe he influences other church leaders to get the, the letter to Philemon into the text of Scripture. That's kind of one of the, the theories within church history. I want to provide another thought for you. There are a couple of phrases within this letter that I want to read back to you again. One of them is this. I will pay the price to restore this man to right relationship. In reading Philemon just a moment ago, that sounds like something that Paul says, but we could just as easily put that statement onto the lips of Jesus, that Jesus is the one who restores us to right relationship with the Father. He is the one who pays the price to make the relationship right. Jesus is the one who pays the price, not for an individual slave, but pays the price for all of human sin. At great cost to himself, at the ultimate cost to himself, he makes us right with the Father. Here's another phrase that shows up in Philemon. Don't look upon this man to see his past, but see him as you would look upon me. Paul says that, but again, it could just as easily be words on the lips of Jesus. Don't look at this man, someone like me, don't look at me and see my past, but see the righteous life of Jesus applied to me through the, the blood shed on the cross. Don't look on this man and see the past, but see Jesus. Like those statements are, are even, to me, more powerful, more convincing than the story of church history, that maybe it all works out in the end. I think these truths teach us about who Jesus is and the, the example of Philemon and Onesimus. It's about them. It's about slavery. It's about the first century. But maybe more than anything else, it's about the gospel, that Jesus is the one who pays the price for our sin and makes it so that we can have right relationship with the Father. If that message is news to you, if that message is something that you've never believed before, you stand before the Father and say, I'm here, I have this letter, I have this thought that maybe I can be made right, but there's a, a peace that remains. You have to take a step of faith, of belief. You have to come before the Father and say, I want that payment. I want to be recognized as righteous before you because of who Jesus is, because I'm not right on my own. I desire for this payment in my place. If that's true for you and you, you need to talk some more about that, I'd love to talk with you some more. Let me pray for us to that end. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that we if we are yours, if we have recognized you as Lord and Savior in our lives, if we have repented of sin and have been made right with you, we are no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves to sin or the past or our mistakes, but we have been set free. Father, I pray that we would see ourselves as set free by the power of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit to change the communities that we live in. Father, I pray that we would be able to, to live with such grace and mercy and forgiveness with one another, that we would have this, this power of the transformation of the gospel, a supernatural power to, to make things right with other people, to forgive other people, 
to, to love and care, even if it costs us something. Father, I pray that we would live in that way, in such a winsome and compelling way, that the world around us wouldn't see us as angry or judgmental, but they would see us as forgiving and merciful and loving and be drawn to you, drawn to you on display in our lives. Father, I pray that, that these truths demonstrated in your word would sink deep into our hearts and minds and transform us even as we read them, transform us as we go about our day. Uh, next week on a, on a Monday morning, let us live transformed by the gospel. Amen. Well, guys, if you have questions about that, if you have questions about first century slavery, if you're trying to understand that, I'd love to talk with you some more. If you need to know more about who Jesus is as the one who sets us free, love to talk with you. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Have a great day.